As we welcome along our vet, Dr. David Tabret. Good afternoon. Nice to have you here again today. Good afternoon, Dave. It's good to see you again. Your topic today, I've got no idea what leptospirosis is. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting disease, but it's one that can spread from our pets to uh, people. So I thought it should be good to alert people to what it is, how we can prevent it, and look after ourselves and our pets. Excellent. And joining us from our sponsor, Dog Overboard, Cheryl's with us. Cheryl Shaw, hello. Hello. Cheryl, you've got a special guest joining us. Yes, we'll be speaking with Claire today. And Claire lives with a dog with a disability. Um, her dog, Smudge, is deaf, so we'll be hearing her story. Now, Cheryl, a special guest joining us right now, Claire. Hello, Claire. Are you there? Yes, I am, Cheryl. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us there. Um, I'm just wanting to get you to tell your story about living with Smudge, your deaf dog. Would you share that story with us? Yeah, sure. Um, do you want me to start from when we've got him? Sounds um, great. <laughs> okay, so um, obviously I'm English and uh, arrived here six years ago. Kids were driving us crazy to get a dog. So I said, yeah, once we were in Australia, we'd get a dog. Uh, found him on the RSPCA website. Um, bought him from there and then realised I'd actually bought him from Dubbo um, and I didn't realise that was a fast five and a half hour trip <coughs> there and back um, went up to get him and they said that we've just discovered your dog's death um, and I was like oh and they said and we advise because you've got young children not to take him because uh, you might startle him and he might bite the children etc and I said well what will happen with him if we don't take him. And they sort of said, well, we'll re-advertise him as a deaf dog, but obviously if we can't do anything with him. And I said, no, no, no. I said, you know, I'm not having a dog being put down that's healthy. Um, we'll take him. And uh, we brought him home, and he, he's got a lovely personality, uh, but he is absolutely deaf. He cannot hear a single thing, which is great when it comes to storms and vacuuming and other stuff like that. So, Claire, but, he would know, have taken a fair bit of training in the early days when he was a puppy. So how did you go about that training to get him to do things for you? Well, we, we took him to um, a doggy preschool uh, and discovered that um, you can actually um, you can teach new dogs new tricks. Um, and we taught him through sign language, um, obviously with rewards and treats. So he would sit on command uh, all hand signals, he would stay, he would roll over, he'd lie down, um, and that's what we did. And, and even to this day, he, he still uh, acknowledges the sign language. Yes, yeah, so obviously um, very important to give him clear signals, so you didn't want him to do something, you know, by those hand signals that wasn't appropriate. I know that you can even get him to give you a kiss on the cheek, which is ra rather cute. Yes, he does give a kiss on the cheek, yeah. um, and and now he'll do it without even doing rewards. He's just a very affectionate dog. Uh, but my biggest concern was because he was deaf, uh, was if he escaped, and obviously he's got no road sense. And my biggest fear was that he'd get run over. Um, so um, he has quite an, an unusual feature, uh, in as much as my favourite colour happens to be purple, and he's got purple mohawk, purple ears, and a purple tail. Um, just so that he can be identified as, oh, that's Smudge the, the deaf dog. Okay, so that really helps with the awareness of Smudge out there if he does um, escape from the yard. Does he wear any special tags or in, anything to indicate that he is deaf? Yeah, on, on his name tag and emergency phone number on the other side, it, it, it says I am deaf um, because, as well, uh, he, he will startle. 
um, to, if, if he's asleep as well uh, and you approach him or touch him, uh, it'll frighten him because obviously he can't hear you. Um, however, he's got really good sense of smell. So he's aware of me coming home just by the car pulling up on the drive. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, um, and starts barking because he's excited. Um, but, um, yeah, and, and obviously the kids as well, if we, if we want to get his attention, we have to tap him first because we, we don't want to scare him. Um, and then, you know, ask him with sign language to move or to come into the other room. Yeah. And so how old is Smudge now? Um, he'll be seven in April. Seven in April. Gee whiz, that's quite a quite a result to, to have him doing all of those wonderful things with you and your family just through signing. That's a great um, achievement, Claire. Yeah, well, we, we had a lot of help and support from our friends. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story about Smudge. And obviously there's many dogs who are out there living with their family that are deaf, and I do appreciate your time. No worries. Take care. Thank you. Our topic today, leptospirosis. Let's find out mm. a little bit more about this, please, David. Well, look, I don't want to raise too much alarm because uh, there are a number of diseases that are shared between animals and people, and we hear about fruit bats as a reservoir of certain viruses and so on. So we know that this can happen. Um, and interestingly, just a little aside, is that, for instance, a ferret can actually get a human influenza and then reinfect people, and I've seen that happen in a family. But today... I wanted to just raise this issue of leptospirosis. Now, it's what we call a spirochete bacterium, and uh, which means if you look at it under a microscope, it looks like a little corkscrew-type organism. And uh, it tends to infect uh, the liver, kidney, and can sometimes affect the brain. So this is where it, it tends to harbour in certain animals, and the ones that are most at risk or carry the disease uh, it's been found in pigs, um, usually in rats is the main reservoir, particularly in our suburban and city environments when we do come across it. There's sometimes uh, rats as a vector and so it's excreted in the urine and very commonly it's associated with contaminated waterways. Uh, so any drains or creeks, um, even parks that have got a little bit of a you know creek running through, if there's any possibility of... Um, rats, and I guess we have to assume that's all of them, then there is a risk that they could be harbouring this disease. Now, um, if it does infect uh, your dog, then it's going to attack those same organs, the liver and the kidney, and it can cause significant disease and possibly death without treatment. So, you know, for dogs, it's going to be a serious disease. What happens if it gets into people? It does the same sort of thing, Um, but it can also attack the neurological system like the brain. So we're very concerned that um, if we do diagnose it in pets, and we've seen it a number of times at, at our hospital, we're very careful with what we call barrier nursing, which means that we have, have to make sure we're wearing gloves all the time, we're handling, and because it's excreted in the urine, it's very easy for it to be shed into the hospital environment. And so therefore it remains a health risk for everybody in that environment. We're very careful about uh, these patients when they're in there having treatment that we don't uh, run the risk of infecting ourselves. So there is a vaccine in cattle uh, available. We don't tend to vaccinate in dogs, and I can't speak on people for vaccination. As far as I know, it's not practised. However, um, 
just because the the incidence of the disease in dogs we don't vaccinate for because it's so uncommon. But I would say over the last 26 years I've been a vet, I've probably seen maybe a dozen cases of patients that have had it. So it does crop up from time to time. And I think it's just another one of those things where we say, okay, how do you prevent it? Basic hygiene. If your pet has... Uh, and you should always be practicing this anyway, make sure you wear gloves and washing hands after cleaning up after your pet so that there's no risk that you're going to get contaminated. Um, and there's a lot of other reasons to do that from a health perspective, but certainly that's just another way that we should be aware of, you know, what are the possible risks for ourselves. So if, if your animal or yourself contract it, is there any... Is it with you then for a while? Or no, it... no, it can be killed off. And basically, to be honest, the treatment is... Um, some fairly basic antibiotics. I think the problem is diagnosing it. It's not always that easy to find. We can do um, what's called serology, where we measure the level of antibodies in the blood to the disease. And if we're lucky, we can actually culture the disease, uh, the organism from the urine and so on. But uh, then we just need to start an appropriate course of antibiotics. But unfortunately, if we don't diagnose it early enough, then the damage to the liver, the damage to the kidney might be too much for the, mm. you know, the pet to sustain. So the earlier we diagnose it, the better. And generally, you're just going to see a pet that's um, quite ill. Often they'll go off their food. They might have vomiting and diarrhea. They may be drinking a bit more. And very often they'll develop jaundice or icterus, which is where their um, bile pigments build up in the blood. And so their eyes and their gums and the skin will go orange or yellow. Uh, and that's really a clue that there, there's something going on with the liver and, and then we go looking with the blood test and we'll find it. And we're joined now by Dennis from Belmont and you've got an interesting pet in the backyard there. Is it a pet? No, it's not a pet. <laughs> um, I found it yesterday around lunchtime um, mm -hmm. and he was in the backyard squarking and carrying on um, and I left him there all day for mm -hmm. the remainder of the day and I put him in a cage last night and we let him out early this morning I have been feeding it um, and I've let him run around all day today hoping the parents had come back but there's no sign of them um, so I I'm in a predicament as mm. to what I do with him so how big is this uh, bird he, this magpie he's feathered yes light coloured feathers but can't fly uh-huh okay like, Chased him all Could he have fallen out of a tree? Is there a nearby uh, tree? He's probably. There's only one tree here, yeah. or down a couple hundred meters. But there's, I've had a look. There's no nest in there. Um, Dennis, in terms of size, apart from his feathering, would he be the yep. size of an adult bird, or just a bit smaller? Or no, smaller. Smaller. Yeah. Um, a little bit, a little bit hard to say without seeing him. So the situation, and I think we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago with. Baby birds, we see a lot of them at this time of the year, of course. And very often the fledglings will start to be flight tested by the parents. And so they'll, you know, they may not actually be able to gain much elevation with their flight, but they yep. can, you know, maybe fly up 10 feet or something uh, to some fence or branch and then to the next one and so on. And that could often take them all day. So it's not unusual to find birds like you're describing when they're doing that flight testing, in which case... You know, they could be uh, some distance from the from the nest. Now, whether the parents are around or not, um, usually they are and they'll be watching. Um, on the other hand, and the other possibility is that this bird 
has ended up there by mishap and may not be old enough to be flying or flight testing. And obviously then that's a bit more dangerous because it needs to return to the, the nest if we can find it. Um, the best advice I could give you though is to contact Hunter Wildlife Rescue or the Native Animal Trust Fund because, Hunter. yeah, Hunter Wildlife Rescue. And if you look up in the white pages or um, you can look on my website at narec.com.au, N-A-R-E-C.com.au. EC. Dot, yep, au. On the links page, you'll find the contact details. And uh, because that circumstance, they'll be able to assess with the age of this bird and whether or not it's something, it's a bird that needs to go into care or is it a bird that can be returned to the environment where it is. And um, in particular, when you start feeding them and so on, that's when we get concerned because their diet is so specific and at varying ages it changes so much with regards to protein and fat and calcium and phosphorus so I understand in the short time you've had him you've done your best looking after him but if you give the guys at uh, Hunter Wildlife Rescue a call they'll be able to get someone out to have a look at him and sort that out for you. Now what about this time of the year David do you get a lot of uh, do the parents actually bump the the babies out of the nest or not? Well, when they, when, when they need to, uh, they've all got to leave, haven't they? they? You know, you've got to grow them up and get them out. Um, it's interesting because they actually, just before they start to fly, often a lot of birds, the, the babies or the fledglings, are actually bigger than the parents. So because they're just sitting there feeding up and mum and dad are bringing the food back. So once they start to fly, obviously they start to slim down very quickly. Um, so it's not unusual when people find birds that they're, they can't fly, and yet they're actually quite large birds, and they're the ones that should be out starting to do that flight testing. But, yes, they they don't need very long in the nest before mum and dad are going to kick them out. With a magpie, how many do they normally have? Is it one, one baby bird, or would they have more? Um, oftentimes we'll see a couple uh, in a nest, and um, I think mum and dad have got their hands full if there's... What about four, four or five? That'd make for a pretty, Sounds like pretty a Brady Bunch <laughs> busy, of magpies. Busy nest, yes. it? Not a lot of room. Yes, what would you call a group of magpies that many? I don't know. I think there's a name for it. Oh, I'll what have, is that name? I, you know? I, I haven't got that one Check today. Check the Google. You, you're giving me research already. Yes. Oh, you're just back and already giving me trouble. Okay. No, I'll look that up for you, Dave. Yeah. Thank you. What's it's a, a group good question. of magpies called? Mm, trouble, that's what I call them. Right. <laughs> a little something like a turnip green. Sounds like something Rick Pointer would eat in uh, Memphis with his catfish. <laughs> catfish and turnip green. He did. That's what he had. Tasty. Said he enjoyed it too. Yeah. Good on you, Rick. You did well. <laughs> this Tony Joe White poke salad, Annie. Now a quarter to one, and well, we know it's a murder of crows mm. and a parliament of owls. But what about magpies? What did you find out? Well, you've got a choice. We can go with the murder again. No, but that's, that's crows. already taken. That's crows, mm. yeah. Look, of the of the ones that uh, Google have given me, I think a gulp, <laughs> a gulp of magpies. Well, it was either that or a congregation. Yeah, they're both charm. Charm. I like charm. Nice. Charm of magpies, that's good, yeah. Let's that's go what I that. love about this show. We're reinventing the English language as we go. <laughs> Scratch those other ones out and we'll go with the charm of magpies. I'll, I'll edit awesome. Wikipedia while we're at it. Please do that. Okay. While you're doing that, we'll take another call. <laughs> Joining us from Morpeth. Hello, Sue, how are you today? Oh, good afternoon. I'm good, thank you. But my little dog's not good. Oh. Um, I've got a Canterville Terrier mm-hmm. and she's very prone to allergies and I've just been to buy her more um, sensitive digestive food. Um... She seems to be in pain. She's not eating. She's quite alert. She's walking around. 
but I've never heard such a grumbly tummy. It's not the first time it's happened. Mm. And I'm wondering if she's very allergy-prone to grasses, etc., can she uh, end up with a sensitive tummy? That's a really good question. Um, it seems that, uh, well, when we're talking about allergies, of course, we're talking about a hyperactive, hyperactive sorry, immune system. And yes. so the immune system then gets exposed to what we call allergens, yes. which are the proteins that uh, enter the body. And they come in through different ways. So obviously on the skin, for instance, uh, we come into contact with, like you said, grass and pollens and so on. Um, sometimes it could be through the gut so that we've, we may eat certain proteins which act as allergens and yeah. we can breathe them in so certain dust and pollens again. And so the outworkings of that immune system could be the same no matter how the protein gets into the body. But, of course, if we think that the problem is in the gut, then we're going to be worried about, you know, have they got diarrhoea, vomiting, things like that. And no, if, no. You know. look, she's gone to the toilet normal this morning. She she doesn't eat. When she gets like this, she won't eat. She chooses. She drinks water, yep. doesn't eat. And then I'm wondering, I was up with her not last night, the night before, like for half the night. Um, I could tell she was in pain. Like, she's still alert. She's not lying yes. down unconscious. Can, can you give a dog um, aspirin? if you think that they're in pain? Well, not recommended um, okay. for a number of reasons. One is that we are concerned about side effects. Two is that um, we have much better drugs available for us to treat dogs that are in pain. And I think if we're at the stage where, you know, that allergies are causing that much discomfort, then that's a, that's a good example of a dog, a patient that requires fairly aggressive treatment with regards to antihistamines, corticosteroid treatments and probably even allergy vaccines and I know you mentioned about the food for instance. So all of those things coming together and, and also um, topical treatments like um, you know different types of shampoo are going to be helpful. It's a pretty complicated area because it really depends on what uh, the what are the causes as i said before is it coming through you know different grasses on the skin we can limit the exposure or with the vaccines we can actually create uh, a way to reverse that process now to get into all of that detail is is something that usually you sit down with your veterinarian who would refer you to a veterinary dermatologist who specialises in those areas, and they can go through step-by-step step what's involved. It, it's quite complicated and complex, but certainly could provide great relief. And I'd be talking to your vet about the different medications and possibly uh, seeing a dermatologist to sort that problem out. Okay, good luck with that, Sue. Thank you for giving us a call. 49216216 if you'd like to get through and talk to our vet, Dr David Tabret. Uh, David won't have it. He says it's definitely a parliament of magpies, okay? He's done a little research. From the Smithsonian. Yeah. So. Yeah. Little to do. How about a few people? <laughs> Listen, please do me a favour. Ring up to when you are a fair medal. Give David something to do rather than being on the. Wikipedia we could put it on now. Trying um, to prompt us. Facebook page. Yeah. To NURFM Facebook. Please and... just ring up to talk to us. And he'll, he'll answer the phone and put you through to us. Uh, before we go any further, what about Dog Rescue Animal of the Week? It's a little pussycat we've got today, Cheryl. Yes, a little kitten up for adoption. It's Toddy. Um, Toddy is five years old. He's a gentle giant. Uh, quite a handsome white cat with tabby markings. Toddy comes from a loving family home and sadly he had to be rehomed due to real estate issues. 
He is really missing his family and the sooner we find him a new family, the better he will be feeling. Toddy is very affectionate. He is great with kids and he prefers to be an indoor cat. But if there is somewhere safe outside, he enjoys to lay in the sun. He will have all his vet work completed, ready for adoption. If you would like to meet Toddy, please call Nikki from Cat Rescue Port Stephens on 0418 487 042. From Lambton. Hello, John. Hello, how are you? G'day, John. We're good. How can we help you today? Uh, look, I'm just ringing up. I've got a five-and-a-half-year-old border collie, mm-hmm. and uh, I gave her Frontline Plus and Interceptor and Chew tablets on Monday, and she hasn't eaten since, and she's very lethargic. She's walking around, uh, drinking, but won't eat anything, and uh, I've checked her for ticks, and I just wonder what could be wrong. Is she desexed? Yes. Good, good, good. Um, unlikely to be related to the medications, the preventatives that you've given her. Right. I presume that she's had those before? Yes. Yeah. And generally, uh, where we have seen any concerns with those, they will probably not show up as being off food. And to be honest, we rarely see problems. Um, so I'm just wondering if there's some other reason that she has gone off of food. I presume she's doesn't make a habit of this. She's probably no. a good eater. Yeah, good eater. She's always hungry. Yeah, yeah. Border collies are yeah, usually yeah. pretty good, and and of an age where, you know, she's not fifteen, where she might. No, no, she's only a young dog, stuff. really. Hmm. So I guess we've got to go back to basics, and assuming her mouth is okay, then oftentimes, uh, just from the little information we've got to start with, I would be concerned about the duration of time you know two days off of food is quite unusual yep and there's you know obviously a whole variety of metabolic or infectious diseases that could be causing that and this is where we get into the trouble with i guess with medicine in general but certainly with veterinary medicine our pets can't tell us what's going on yeah yeah um you know if you go to the doctor and you say well i haven't really wanted to eat anything for two days and i've got this pain here or you know, I'm feeling a bit poorly here, I'm a little bit dizzy, but dogs just go, no, I'm not just going to eat, and you have to work it out. Mm, she walks over to the bowl and has two biscuits and then walks away. Okay. So her brain is telling her that she wants to go and eat, but then her body's saying, no, not really. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it's like. Yeah. So I've checked all over for ticks and I can't see anything and the back legs are all right and everything, Yep. but, but she's definitely very lethargic. Yeah, so I'd certainly say it's time for a checkup. Um, you know, but dogs that go off their food, if it's two days, that's something, there's something definitely wrong. Now, to speculate on what it could be, uh, there's a list as long as, uh, long as my arm and a bit further that could answer that, and we probably need about 18 hours to, to run through all the possible causes. However, if your vet would be able to conduct a detailed physical examination, go through detailed history with you, and that's like putting all the pieces of the puzzle together, putting the jigsaw puzzle together and trying to come up with some answers, sometimes in the very early stages and when you're a very astute observer, uh, you'll pick up on these things a lot earlier before it becomes more obvious. You know, a day down the track she develops a you know, cough or a, a swelling somewhere, then ob- that becomes obvious, but at this early stage, you've picked up on it. It's still, that's the time to go and get it checked out. All right, John, thank you for giving us a call here on Pet Chat. We do it every Wednesday from midday till one. Is there any uh, dog shows this weekend, Cheryl, that we know of? 
Not that I'm aware of. Okay. And uh, anything unusual in the surgery in the recent days, last well, couple of weeks? Any unusual? Um, I, I only omitted from saying this earlier because I say it all the time at this time of the year, is the snake. Bites is uh, starting to get those. Yeah. We've had uh, quite a few, um, some that have been quite successfully treated, but unfortunately, a few that haven't survived. But I think, to be what honest, are they the browns or the blacks? Or? Yeah, the, well, the brown snake bites are the more venomous. And mm. this year, we have seen more snake bite patients than uh, any other year or in the last 15 years. Yeah, that I've yeah. seen, so it's quite remarkable. Unusual weather too, with us having you know some rain, but then the sun comes out like today and yesterday, and it must confuse the snakes. They they come out. Oh, I think the snakes are quite happy. I think it mm. confuses us, yeah, because yeah. we don't know where we're going. With you know, is it safe to venture into the bush? And I think, as we always say, just be alert and uh, not alarmed. Alrighty, thank you for that. We'll catch up with you again soon. Thanks, Dave, and Cheryl next week. Thank you, Dave. Yes, there we go. Joining us, that is our pet chat for another week here at Two in Your